Shut up and sit down. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. This is your host, Matt McKenna. I'm not joined by John Lancaster today, but I am fortunate enough to be joined by a very special guest, someone I've wanted to talk to for a while, and that's Chris Lombardi. Ms. Lombardi is the author of I Ain't Marching Anymore, Dissenters, Deserters, and Objectors, and she is on the board at Center on Conscience and War. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Of course, yeah. I've really been enjoying your book, and I've really wanted to talk to you about this topic. So we've been fortunate enough to have some veterans of America's wars come on this show. Uh, most recently, we had Danny Scherzen, who I believe you've been on his show as well, Fortress on a Hill. Yeah. And, you know, this topic of the very people who serve in the military of the U.S. empire turning on the U.S. military or in some fashion resisting U.S. militarism is a phenomenon that I think is really interesting and something that you've probably written more about than almost anybody. So I want to ask you about how did you become interested in this topic? What what drove you to do the, the incredible amount of research that you must have had to do digging through the historical archive to to uncover the reality of this topic? So what drove your interest? Well, I- I usually trace it to a couple of moments. And when I tell, I tell the story for my acknowledgements, I start when I was in sixth grade and I had read, read the entire school library. So the aide had loaned me a book called Going to Jail. This is 1972 or something. And I'm learning for the first time that America has political, political prisoners. It blew my mind. And I learned much later that that book was written by Howard Levy, who was a very famous guy in the GI resistance movement. So I like to joke that I got started then, but I didn't really. But, you know, I, I'm kind of a backwash boomer. I was born in, you know, in 62. And so I witnessed the 60s as in diapers, but I was sympathetic and I had a feeling that I was sympathetic with all the demonstrators. And I uh, wrote a play about the anti-draft movement when I was in college. And I got trained as a draft counselor when draft registration was, was reintroduced in, in 80. And I got trained by an organization that only exists called the Central Committee for Conscientious Objectors, which has been, was around from World War II till fairly recently. And then 15 years later, I got a, I got a job with them living in San Francisco, editing a magazine. I'm like, you know, I'm a liberal. I get to edit a magazine. This is a little cool. But one of the other jobs, uh, points of that job is that it was on something called the GI Rights Network. You know about the GI Rights Network, GIRights.org, and it's an association of various nonprofits that answer calls from military personnel that want out and want, want to figure out some, what to do. And it comes to objectors, they also get calls directly to who want to become a military conscious objector. So suddenly I'm talking to soldiers every day. It changed my life. I learned suddenly that, you know, military personnel were not that different from me. And in fact, I, living in San Francisco in the 90s, where everybody was kind of slacky and casual, these were these people that I really understood because they wanted to do something big. They were they were serious people, and they were in distress and wanted help. And I coordinated a, a group of counselors to answer calls with me, who were all Vietnam veterans, and that was when I learned the power of Vietnam veterans. The anti-war veterans are a very powerful force, and when you meet them, as you notice, it's hard not to get hugged. And then, so I thought about this all the time, and then I went off to, to journalism school. I thought about, I wanted to write about anti-war veterans, and then 9-11 happens, and suddenly we're in war. And I was, I was sad I wasn't at that job to take those calls then, but I wrote about it as much as I could. And then I went to Columbia and took a book seminar, and the guy that ran it, 
I said, I want to write a book about the Jerry Rice Hot One. It's kind of a weird thing. You know, you got all these, these peace sticks and hippies and, and priests answering this phone, and then you know, somebody's calling for Fort Benning. It's kind of interesting. And this was 2005. And the professor said to me, why don't you write a narrative history of soldiers of dissent? Okay. That took a little longer. That took me 15 years. Well... I appreciate that you took the time to do it because I, I was reading it and I was thinking this must have taken an incredible amount of research. So you must have been traveling around the country interviewing different people. And what you said about hearing soldiers' stories and how they're not that different from us. You know, I, I have close friends that served in the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. Uh, and, you know, they both, two of, my, two, two of my closest friends that served in the military, both uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, they were very much voicing a lot of the same messages I heard throughout your book. And, you know, so this, we have the stereotype that soldiers are proud to serve their country and it's really much more complicated than that. And so I appreciate you doing that research. And what I, before we get into some of the specifics, mm-hmm. I just want to ask you some big picture questions about sure. things that you've noticed. Cause surely you've probably drawn some conclusions about some of the general tendencies of the kinds of people that are prone to resistance and dissent. So big picture, what would you say are some of the primary motivations for people who are enlisted and end up resisting within the military or dissenting before or after their time of service? Like, So what has motivated these people who have been brave enough to dissent, often with some pretty scary consequences, which we'll get into as well? Well, we could talk about um, immediate things, like being underpaid or conditions that you suffer from inside. And then there's a spectrum between that and conscience, deciding that you can't conscientiously be part of using violence against another country. A lot of stuff in between. And depending on what you're talking about, it changes. As you noticed in, in this question you sent me, I'm also tracking sort of the war against some of our foundational injustices. And you've got people of color and people and women and people who are discovering that, that they're not being accepted in the, in the country, and certainly not in the military. We, we have this section of defense right now is saying we have to stand down about racism in the military right this second, which is interesting to me. And they're trying to, they're trying to figure this out because they understand that they need people of color. All of that is going on as well. Yeah, and it you demonstrate the gap in the book between the rhetoric that patriotic Americans allege about the country, the alleged values that we are sp- supposedly have and the reasons we fight our wars for. And I think listening to some of the soldiers, specifically soldiers who are from more some of the most oppressed groups in American history, really can highlight the disparity between rhetoric and the actual practice of the U.S. empire. And, you know, especially when you when you highlight that in specific wars, it really calls attention to this this uh, juxtaposition of rhetoric versus reality. So I'm going to ask you to to get into some of the specifics now. And you articulate that this dissent within the U.S. military is not new. It's as old as the country itself and even predates the country. And you Mm -hmm. talk about the Revolutionary War. And I was fascinated to read this story because I teach the Revolutionary War and I try to give a pretty nuanced take to it. You know, we talk about the realities that most Native American tribes that fought in the war fought on the side of the British along with most enslaved people that fought in the war. But you also talk about some people within the the Continental Army that chose to resist in various ways. So can you talk about the story of Jacob Ritter? Who is Jacob Ritter and what happened to him on September 11th, 1777? 1777 was the Battle of Brandywine. Sarah Vowell mentioned him in her book. I was very writing about him when she did. And she said that 
that was how bad, bad the battle was, that someone started out a Lutheran and ended up a Quaker. And he was a young, a young man, he, he joined the military for the same reason we'll do now. He needed he need, he need to support himself. And he, he was curious about Quakers. He knew about them, but he, he said, he, in his memoir, he says that he was seized at that moment with a belief that it was unchristian for him to kill. And he stood there while the mortars come and just stood there. And thank the gods they didn't get killed. Right. So he's one of the earliest people we know of in what we call American history to resist within the military. And of course, he's electing to put himself at incredible risk, too, right? Not just from the, his alleged enemies on the battle of the British Army, but also for himself. And that brings me to a, a question I, I didn't actually list here, but, you know, maybe another general question is like, historically, what kind of penalties have people who have done as minor dissents as, you know, refusing to fight or, or refusing to fire a shot, ranging to all the way to uh, deserting or joining the other side. You were the court-martialed. I want to raise one guy that you didn't mention to me, but I, want, I think that in terms of the name of the country, the book was almost started with a guy named Matthew Lyon, who he had his soldiers walk off on him because they were sick of being there in Canada to guys from rich people's lands. And gonna, they were putting themselves at, very, at, at risk, and they decided to just desert. And he got court-martialed for that, for them doing it. In terms of things like conscious ejection, that has evolved. Now there's, there's a system that the military has that they recognize as conscious ejection, and they try to accommodate it as much as they can. Dissent starts out with just expressing yourself. Sometimes there's people just kind of whispering to each other, I can't stand this, and, and publishing things. And then eventually some, some people just deciding they're not going to. They're, they're deserting by squads. 1812, they're talking about so and so soldiers deserted by squads. It sounds organized to me. I think that, again, throughout the book, you're showing that it's, you know, we have this stereotype that it's cowardly to desert, right? That it's that it somehow shows a weaker uh, constitution. But it, it actually, what you're showing through the book is it takes an incredible amount of risk to do that. Um, so I, I want to move us on to the War of 1812. And speaking of the price that some people have paid you you describe the story of William Apis and the introduction to his story is he watched a fellow soldier get executed for various crimes I, I assume it was for desertion and you know you tell the story of his quest toward anti-war activism and dissent within the military so I guess who was William Apis and how did his dissent uh, manifest in the war of 1812 his mother was African-American and his father was Indian, was, was Native American. And he, even when he was signing the contract, it's like, do I want to really want to fight one white man's war? And he was harassed for this. You know, when he uh, was moving, to, traveling to Montreal with his unit, he was, he was treated badly. You know, they, they made fun of him and they, they did all kinds of stuff. He deserted and came back. But he was questioning whether he should really be doing this. And he eventually ends up, he serves out basically his term he was, they, they tried to make him re-enlist because this war was going badly and they said, oh, all, all your contracts are burned up, so you might as well sign up again. But he, he became known later because he, he an activist for Native American rights. He had like another, another life as an activist, became famous for that, and wrote, wrote books. Right, and of course, people like William Apis are really a precursor to others that are going to follow in those footsteps. And, you know, again, what we're trying to call attention to is often it's the most oppressed people within American society that are calling attention to the unjust nature of United States wars. Now, you know, I just want to mention, like, the War of 1812 is not 
the story that we've been told. It's not the scrappy United States up against the British Empire. It is very much a war against Native Americans and taking Native American land. Uh, we very infrequently hear the story of Tecumseh uh, uniting the Indian tribes of the Midwest to fight against the U.S. Empire. We very rarely hear the, about the fact that the United States tried to invade Canada. And this was an imperial war as much as the ones that are going to follow. And I think that's important to recognize. And it's because of pe people like William Apis drawing conclusions about the unjustified nature of that war that we can understand these this scale of mass violence. So... Moving us along here, is something else you call attention to that that I didn't know, even as I'm a history teacher, is that there's this link between abolition, the abolition movement, people like mm -hmm. Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison, who themselves didn't always see eye to eye. And then you take it a step further and you actually talk about their children serving in, the, in, in yeah. wars, in the Civil War. And I want to ask you about, so I want to focus on Frederick Douglass' son. I've always wanted to write, but I, I wish I could write a biography of Lewis Douglas, and I don't have, I don't have the uh, academic clout to do that. You know, it's, people have been saying that period for years, and I can't do it. But someone has to write, write a biography of Lewis Douglas. Yeah. Let's, can you tell me about his experience first in the Civil War, and then how that influenced the way he would later on speak about the Spanish-American War, where he began questioning the right of the United States to you know, take over the Philippines or in, you know, spread the United States noble mission as it was. Mostly what we know about Lewis is of course his father. He, he worked with his father the whole, his most of his life. When the mass phase proclamation happened, he and his, his brother, Charles, were busy typesetting the proclamation. And so he, he, he fought at Fort Wagner. He saw the movie Glory. He was, he was at that battle. And the most recent biography that I read of Frederick Douglass mentions Lewis, and apparently he, he suffered a lot more in that battle than I realized. I think he had heavy PTSD. I don't know that for a fact, but some of what I read in the Blight book suggested that to me. And there's some, some new correspondence that is available that I would love to go, go see. But uh, he worked on his father's, father's newspapers in the National Era, he basically typeset throughout the entire, you know, bit of when Reconstruction kind of fell apart and Douglas is still publishing his newspapers talking about the terrible things, these lynchings that are happening. And then he looks at the paper and there's a war going on and young men of color are being heavily recruited. And Booker T. Washington is saying, this is a great opportunity. Washington was basically being a big show for the, for the war. And, uh, that was why Douglas thought that he had to, he had to speak out. He didn't get involved in any organize, organizing against the war because those were all white guys who just wanted to create little color auxiliaries. They were not. They they were actually pretty racist themselves. Right, and as some people of his time, including W. E. B. Du Bois, referred to Booker T. Washington as the great accommodationist, right? This, someone who we got, we got accommodated. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and you know. This is something that should have been called attention to immediately when you think about the United States having a right to go conquer the Philippines or even spread democracy to the Caribbean and, and fight Spain. And, and you know, he, Douglas is calling attention to the fact that why would the United States have the right to spread its message anywhere? This is the same 
country that has rampant anti-black violence going on in the South at the time. This is the height of Jim Crow segregation. And yeah. he's calling attention to that disparity that most people should realize when they study the Spanish-American War. This is not a noble mission. This is purely a, a mission of conquest. And, you know, I, as someone who has, a, my wife is Filipino, and of course, her, my in-laws are all Filipino. A lot of people gloss over the fact that the Filipino-American War is one of the bloodiest wars in U.S. history. It, it really reminds me a lot of uh, stories you would hear from Vietnam, right? The brutal counterinsurgency, torture, you know, torture of civilians, the, the, this whole, and of course you call attention to extreme racism. And again, it, we see the people pointing this out are the very soldiers dissenting, and in this case, African-American soldiers. So this is someone I wanted to talk about for a while because I've read his story, uh, not just from you, but in other publications mm -hmm. as well. And he's one of the most inspiring figures. David Fagan, yeah. In, in, yes, David Fagan. He's one of the most inspiring figures in U.S. military history. So can you tell us his story? I really hope they make this into a movie one day because it's incredible. Have you, have you seen, ever seen Amigo? No. Tom Sales' movie about Filipino War? I have not. You should. Okay. Yeah. John Sales also wrote a novel that I wanted to mention to you because I realized you were interested in um, called A Moment of the Sun, where he includes Wilmington in that story. The fact the Philippine War is, is at the same time, grows at the same time as Jim Crow. And it's the same, the same stuff. Jim Fagan was, you know, he was, the thing that we haven't talked about in terms of black soldiers and citizenship, historically that's been the way that this is best as people got some, some status in the world. And Du Bois spent a lot of time fighting for black soldiers. Even though he started out anti-war, when he realized that the war was gonna, wars were going to happen, he wanted to make sure that the soldiers that he that he knew he was in charge of, that he was protecting, would get some status. And that that was true for back in the Civil War. And so the the people who joined the military in the Philippine War, they were pretty aware, you know, that they they joked that I'm, I'm, fight, I'm, I'm carrying the white man's burden. But they didn't desert much. They didn't actually, you know, they were not, did not descend actively in, inside their units very much. But Fagan, at some point, after having been in some of the terrible battles, decided he would take the opportunity that was offered to him by the Philippine army and switch, switch sides, and he did. Reminding me of, you know, they talk about the Mexican-American War. There's what they call the San Patricios, the, the state St. Patrick's Battalion, Irish-American uh, soldiers who accepted that offer and worked for the Mexican army. Right, and yeah, so I glossed over that because we have talked about that specific instance on our show before, so I don't want people to think I'm dwelling on it too much, especially because I'm myself an Irish-American. Yeah, it, it is incredible that you have these people who are so oppressed within Irish in the mid-19th century, very oppressed within yeah. the United States, and of course, African-Americans for the entirety and pre-U.S. history. And they're calling attention to the utter hypocrisy of the United yeah. States engaging in these wars overseas, allegedly for freedom or democracy, when it, it's so far from the truth. And I think that we start hearing this term more recently, intersectionality, but I think what David Fagan does is the exemplar of that word, right? Yeah. The, the exact personification where he's identifying much more with the Filipinos who are subject to American violence than he does with his fellow soldiers. The Philippine War, Aguinaldo, the, the big hero there, their constitution, like, they, they it's like Ho Chi Minh, they, were, they modeled themselves on America. Aguinaldo's like, excuse me, you know, 
I fought for, for your war against Spain. They have told me to be independent. So it's also a case historically throughout time that soldiers decided we're going to take you at your word. And your word is that we're standing for freedom and justice. We're standing for equality. We're doing that. So I'm going to do that. And so many of the honorable leaders of third world nationalistic movements like Aguinaldo and Ho Chi Minh, they believed in the better nature of the United States. And of course, it's the United States that proves them wrong to have believed in, in the better nature. And, and, and the story of the Philippines is just so sad because it becomes this U.S. colony uh, subjugated by the United States for until 1946. Uh, of course, victimized by the Japanese during the during World War II. Mm -hmm. Who knows if the, Japan would have even targeted the Philippines were it not an American colony at the time? That's a counter history that we'll have to write someday. But um, and then, of course, the neo-colonial relationship that still goes on with the Philippines. But you know, I, I think that more people need to hear that particular story because it's not told, and I think it's purposely left out of history books because it's a dangerous message. It calls into question the entire imperial project. Moving us forward, you know, I'm just kind of moving through the timeline right here, okay, you've got, just as you did in the book, and it's it's excellent. Can you speak to how people started to reject war on the grounds of conscience? These people that you've been referring to as conscientious mm -hmm. object objectors, and you know, you can talk about how they've been treated. You are you kind of already mentioned that, but we really mm -hmm. start to see this arise during World War One and World War Two, and you know the people forget that World War I was not this like call to arms that everyone believed in. There were many, many Americans who um, I would say correctly could not see wh why it was logical for the United States to join a wh what was basically an outright slaughter, mass slaughter in Europe, which didn't mm -hmm. seem to many Americans to have anything to do with American interests. Well, the conscious objector was actually the phrase was invented in World War I. Soldiers have been doing that much longer. I mean, I talk about Jason Jacob Ritter and all that. But the term was actually come up with, this is, this is funny, actually, and I don't really talk about it in the book, but um, it was it was originally a term that was used by anti-vaccine people, the polio vaccine, people were resisting the polio vaccine. And so the people advocating for, for soldiers who were trying, resisting used that phrase saying, you have to treat them, treat them well because they're conscientious objectors. <laughs> so... Um, Unfortunately, no one that, that now suddenly some, now we have a more recent thing of conscious objection to abortion, which they it's ridiculous, ridiculous. But anyway, it started around World War One is when the terminology started to be used. Um, and you had a number of peace churches. The, 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 the explicit um, refusal to 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 fight is, was originally based on religion. It's that now, now it happens circularly, but talking about in seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, it was all about religion, Mennonites or Quakers and that kind of thing. And so, churches who represented those guys would start interacting with governments, saying, "You need to make an alliance for them." And by the time we get to um, the Civil War, it's you know you can pay three hundred bucks and you're fine. You know, well, you help help the war a little bit by giving give us some money, and your your conscience objector. And even in, in the revolution, a guy would get chased out because he's not dressed like a Quaker. I don't, I don't I don't believe you're a Quaker, but 
is all about that. And then over over time, it evolved to now when it's much more broad broad based. There's a lot of certainly a lot of religious objectors still. There's a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses who are objectors in Korea. There are, there are still COs in prison who because of Jehovah's Witnesses. So there's still a lot of religious objection out there. The amount of, of the challenge that that puts up, there's been a tendency to the military can sort of get a wise it like okay those guys are just religious. Meanwhile, we're going to keep everybody else. It's an attention where I, I, I'm on what I said to this conscious objector organization. Most of the time, help people to do that to get legal, but to the extent that it becomes not dissent because it's, because it's the military is allowing it, and you don't want it to cooperate with the system. And the guy we haven't mentioned, well, one, Evan Thomas, who was he was a seminary student, and he. Went to Scotland, went to Scotland, and met all, all those guys, the, the big conscious objectors in, in Britain, and decided that he was going to be a conscious objector. And he he stood up and resisted throughout the entire war. He kept, you know, not being allowed to do. They 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 said, okay, you do this. No, no I'm not going to cooperate with this. I'm not going to. And to the very end of the war, they figured out that there was a way for him not to be in prison anymore. But he ended up becoming a director of the War, Resist- War Resisters League. Yeah, that's the the War Resisters League. And, of course, you know, World War One and World War Two, and I'll focus on World War One for now because, you know, Wilson said this was a war to spread democracy or make the world safe for democracy. And all wars. Yeah, right. Um, I think people need to focus on, like, this is a war which was, at the time of the U.S. entry, basically a stalemate that... Mm-hmm. One side was going to have to sue for peace or the other, and they were going to, have, you know, again, counter history, but the chances are it would have been a much more even peace than resulted that, of course, punished Germany mm-hmm. so severely that the Nazi party formed for, for other causes as well. But, you know, you had people resisting this war facing extreme penalties, right? The, you know, outside the army, we had people like Eugene Debs who were jailed uh, through the mm-hmm. Espionage Act, Emma Goldberg, uh, sorry, Emma Goldman. And, of yeah. But, of course, people who took these risks in the army were taking this risk at a time where, in Europe especially, people were getting executed for refusing to fight or for deserting. So, you know, conscientious, being a conscientious objector was extremely brave in those days. And, you know, move, moving us on, and, and feel free to, to dwell on any of these topics as long as you'd like. I, I know you've, you've written a lot more than I can ask questions about, but... So I, I called attention to the fact that World War One was allegedly to spread democracy, right? And somehow it resulted in spreading the British and French en- empires another 100,000 miles. The colonialism, um, yeah. Yeah, expanded colonialism to the Middle East even further. But can you speak to the fact that the alleged missions and histories of World War One and World War Two, you know, these allegedly noble wars, people, especially World War Two, the way it's portrayed in U.S. media, the alleged missions of those wars, how do they contrast with the realities of the United States itself at the time and also within the U.S. military? And specifically, I want to know, how did non-white members of the U.S. armed forces highlight this disparity between the alleged ideals and reality on the ground for many African Americans in uniform? And, and, you know, you mentioned specifically people who later become quite well known, uh, Medgar Evers and Robert Seale, Bobby Seale, uh, as he becomes known later on. Medgar Evers is, you know, he's borderline in my book because, of course, he didn't didn't descend to war ever, but he, he was 
he was one of the people that bought that bought the the dream, and like I said, took it seriously enough. Like okay, he went. He was in World War Two. He was he was laborer. He was at Omaha Beach, and he he thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be able to vote when I come back. I will be a citizen. I can vote. I can vote. And being on the NAACP and and got assassinated. And Bobby Seale, again, took the dream and joined the Air Force because he thought, you know, I can make myself something of mine. And was treated in sort of racist fashion that he ended up deserting. That was sorry, he just ended up not staying. And he ended up finding the, the Black Panther Party. I'm thinking also, however, from World War II, which I was the Port Chicago mutiny. Now, the Navy was very late to allow any black sailors at all. And when they did, instead of putting them on a ship to go to Europe, they said, okay, we're going to put you in California and you can load ammunition. And one of the most dangerous things you could possibly do. And at a certain point, and then at one point, it was so dangerous that a ship like actually exploded. And they're like, excuse me, do we like, want to keep doing this? And at one point, a bunch of them said, this is not safe. But the officers that making the orders didn't have to handle it. It was just these black soldiers that had to do it, black sailors. And you have to do something, help us be safer. You're just doing this as, in a way, you're doing this in a way that's not safe for us. And basically because they weren't, you know, treating us like, like people. You don't think of it as people. It was Stone Marshall, actually, who then later, later became a Supreme Court Justice. Ended up being the lawyer that represented them when they were court-martialed, and they said they called the conspiracy. They called the mutiny. It's not a mutiny. And I didn't. I don't want to die. It's not a mutiny. And it took until fairly recently for any of those cases to ever be recognized again. But that—that's one of those cases. We learn that veterans always understand that this happened, and it becomes part of the tradition. One of the, one of the threads of this of my book is is sort of everything old is new again, and Fort Chicago happened, and something that we're working on behalf of injustice now. Understand this? Yeah, and I I think that a lot of people forget that the U.S. military was still very segregated during World War II. This war that was allegedly yeah. to fight fascism. Yeah. Many people in the United States might have felt like they were living under fascist race laws very justifiably at the time. And moving us forward, uh, you know, we have this reality also that people who become some of the best anti-war voices decades and decades later, like Howard Zinn and Philip Berrigan, developed their anti-war credentials during World War II, uh, this war that's allegedly such a noble conflict for the United States. So can, uh, I know it's a, you mentioned them briefly in the book. They're not, it, Philip Berrigan comes up again and again, actually, but can you? Well, the point is they recognize the wrong war when they see it. A number of them would probably have not said that World War II was wrong, but when they see Vietnam, excuse me, this is not right. <laughs> you end up with Kunstler and Ensign and Berrigan and William Sloan Coffin, and we're call them that appeared five, five years ago. It's like, yeah, this is, this, the, the phrase that I use for the, for the Vietnam War movement is priests, poets, politicals, and pranksters. And there, many, there were people in all those categories who 
who became founders of the, of the movement against Vietnam, who started World War II. And it comes from comes to the long war. It's kind of like the anti the movement against the war in the Philippines. There was a woman there who uh, her husband she was married to the, the captain that captain in Glory, who died. Just to be solved gold. And she gave speeches about, excuse me, I've seen the real award that makes that makes sense. This does not. So that that's one of the things that goes on. Yeah, and of course, like Howard Zinn and, and Berrigan, they become, you talk about in your book, that they become some of the major voices 20 years later against the Vietnam War. And mm-hmm. Howard Zinn's experience in World War II especially, so, I mean, I've read his books, they severely affected mm-hmm. him. He, he, he was conducting bombing campaigns and, you know, he... You know, for all, not that I think it's a worthy criticism, but for all the criticism of anti-war voices because they haven't served in the military, that cannot be leveled against people like Howard Zinn or the yeah. or Philip Bergen. So I, I appreciate that you included those names in your book. Now, moving on to the Korean War, there's some really interesting cases here where people dissented and they're not really remembered though. Uh, they're not mm-hmm. people that we talk about these days. You know, when we think of the Korean War, you hear about Douglas MacArthur. And again, yeah. the Korean War is another one where our, our take on it in the general society is pretty simple, right? North Korea invaded South Korea. And of course, it's much more complex than that. It was an artificial border. Both sides have been exchanging violence. South Korea at the time and and for years afterward, decades afterward, was a military dictatorship. This is a much more complicated war than we realize. And of course, there's been very few saturation bombing campaigns in history, like the, the hell that was unleashed on North Korea between 1950 and 1953. It's something like 600 tons of bombs, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of canisters of napalm. So this was a brutal war, but you do talk about some of the dissenters, and someone that really interested me was this person named Clarence Adams, and who you speak to the fact that after the war, he chose to not go back to the United States as his form of dissent mm-hmm. against not just U.S. militarism, but kind of a, an indictment of U.S. culture as a whole. So can you talk about the case of Clarence Adams? I'm so glad that Clarence Adams started to write an autobiography because there are 30 of them with the cold of turncoats. And we would not know very much about, about them unless he wrote the book. But they were largely African-American. And we're talking about 1750. In one, and people knew what was what life was back home, and the prisoner war camp they were in was run by the Chinese, and they made choice. They made a choice not to not to go, not to go home. And there's the press in this in this country was like they've been brainwashed. They've all been brainwashed, you know. Brainwashing could happen to you, that kind of thing. And Adams actually told a reporter at that time, Jim Crow brainwashed me. <laughs> what are you talking about? The Chinese didn't brainwash me. What are you talking about? He eventually ended up coming home because during the Cultural Revolution, it got really hard. But in between that time, he, he got married. He was editor of books there. And he met W.B. Du Bois. You know, du Bois is kind of, I would call him the zealot of the anti-movement. Except now, what's happened with Woody Allen, I can't use the word zealot anymore. But he, he, around, he, he shows up repeated times in, in the story. And he said, I've met this nice man who has decided to live in China. And he's doing very well with his wife. And Clarence Adams was like, oh my God, I read, I read the Skulls of Black Folk when I was in the prison of war camp. It saved my life. It was 
an interesting thread in terms of looking at deciding that you believe in and having having some power in the world. Yeah, it's just so telling about the leadership's mentality of the United States at the time that there's no reason that an African-American would want to stay in China other than he must have been brainwashed. And we see this pattern over and over again. Later on, the civil rights activists, they must be influenced by communist Russia. No, they don't have any legitimate grievance. And you can see it today, right? Over the summer, you saw Susan Rice, who used to be in the Obama administration, talking about the George Floyd protest, saying that they were organized by Russia, as if- What? Yeah, you gotta look up this clip. In fact, I'll put it in the show. I didn't see that, my God. Yeah, it's crazy, it's as if, People, African-Americans and, and people in general who have been subject to police brutality don't have good reason to want to protest against mm-hmm. that. And it's so disagencing of, uh, to say about people who have legitimate grievances that they must be influenced by some outside mm-hmm. power. And there's nothing possibly wrong with the United States that might influence someone to dissent in that way. And so thank you for writing about that story because I'd never heard of his story before. And again, it's an interesting one. But I, I do want to move us forward because one group we haven't talked about yet, and we should because it's 50% of the population, is women. And women have had a tendency to illuminate the larger population to injustice, especially when it comes to our militarism. So we do see women gaining more access to military service over the course of the 20th century. So so as they gain access to more experience in the military, of course, so do grow their opportunities for dissent. So just as other oppressed groups within the U.S. had shown resistance in the past to U.S. wars, I want to talk about how we find some examples of women showing dissent within U.S. wars, specifically in Vietnam. And we really see this in the case of Susan Schnall, uh, who I believe is still around. Susan Schnall was at an event I just saw a couple of days ago. This, this is, you know, and you know, you're, you're airing this, you know, that this, this is, 2021 is a real anniversary of a lot of things happened in the Vietnam War movement. 71 was a big year. And uh, there was a big event commemorating the history, the, the 50th anniversary of Winter Soldier, which was a, at a point where um, Vietnam veterans were exposing the truth of what was happening in Vietnam. And Susan Chanel was in this event. And she's, she's great. She was owning it, her history as an anti-war activist. And she mentions the fact her story is that she was joined the military, she was in ROTC so that she could afford to go to Stanford University and study nursing. And she became a nurse. She, uh, she ended up involved in the anti-war movement and she actually had a friend who had, was able to rent a plane and they dropped anti-war leave lists on military bases up and down the Bay Area. And then a couple of days later, she went and marched in uniform at the GI, GI March for Peace. Yeah, this is while she's in uniform. We should remind people how brave this is. And that, that, that's what your core march was for. Not, not for the, the flyers, but for, but for the march. Yeah, that's incredible. And, and you spoke, you know, I'll, I'll ask, like, what, how has she maintained her anti-war credentials? Obviously, she's still pretty active. Uh, does mm-hmm. she, has she resisted other wars after Vietnam? Is she still active well, in the she, she's anti-war? Well, she's focused mostly on um, trying to make reparations. There's an active group trying to address Agent Orange and the effects of the Agent Orange. The Vietnam Veterans for Peace, Agent Orange Responsibility Campaign is very comprehensive. 
Right, and I, I would be in full agreement that not only do we owe reparations, I'm, I'm not sure that that crime the United States perpetrated in Vietnam could ever be repaid any more than the Jewish population of Europe could be repaid by Germany. You know, this is one of the worst, what yeah. the United States did to Vietnam is one, among the worst things one society has ever done to another, and specifically with Agent Orange, with the way it targets not just the people who were living at the time, but generations afterward. I'm just not sure what the United States could ever do to repay for that crime committed. But that's great that she's making an effort, and I definitely think that conversation is worth having. So you also, in your Vietnam chapter, you start talking about how it's not just active duty soldiers who are resisting. There's also a really valuable contribution from people in the VVAW, that's the Vietnam Veterans Against the War. So can, can you talk about how veterans contributed to activism against the war in Vietnam? Vietnam Veterans Against the War was one of the most ama- amazing groups that has ever existed. And it was its downfall was had a lot of awful reasons, but it was one of the most amazing peace organizations out there. And we're talking about the organizing in every on every military base all over the world. And they did those 50th anniversaries, in addition to that Winter Soldier investigation we're talking about, in April is the 50th anniversary of Operation Desert Canyon the Third, which was basically one other time where a bunch of veterans went and swarmed the Capitol, but peacefully. And they, you know, people remember it because John Kerry gave a big speech. And that's what people most remember it for. But they, they met and met with their Congress people. They camped out on the, on the mall. They really, and they held hearings in Congress about war crimes because they were under the impression that if American people knew about war crimes, they would, they would hate the war. It's very sad. That's what I thought so. But apparently that wasn't true. But they, they made an effort. And it was, I think that it did, it did help the more sooner than it would have. Yeah, you know, you mentioned John Kerry. I don't know how you feel. It's just so upsetting to see John Kerry having this heroic role during the Vietnam War where he turns against the mission of the war. He, of course, he's one of the most famous voices in the Winter Soldier hearings. And now he's pretty hawkish. Like, he's supported the war in Iraq. Of course, he supported the war in Afghanistan. I'm sure he supports regime change in Syria. It's just a totally different character than he was in the 1970s. So I don't know what explains that. I actually, I actually approached him, his people, to see if he would talk to me about writing about about Dewey Kenyon. And of course, nothing has happened. But he won't talk to me. Yeah. Well, I don't know what weapons contractors funded him or was funding his campaign yeah. back in '04. But who knows? And also, you know. I've read about other instances too where veterans were doing things like pretty radical action. Like they, there was a march, I believe, through New Jersey to Pennsylvania where they would like stop oh, yeah, in yeah, every the, town. The operation active withdrawal, right of active withdrawal. They went all through New Jersey yeah. and they ended up in Valley Forge. Which is where I'm broadcasting from right now, not Valley Forge. My brother yeah. lives in Valley Forge, ironically, but I live yeah. in New Jersey, so it's like walking from my house to my brother's house. But along yeah. the way, they're like, you know, they're, they're not doing anything actually violent but they're you know we're they're stopping people's towns they're searching people's yeah. property they're, they're pretending they're doing the, the pretend that they that you, you get to be you get to be they had volunteers who got to be the refugees who got to be the, the victims 
and giving people a small taste of what was happening in Vietnam at the time. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, yes, yeah, I'm a bit skeptical, as it sounded like you were, that do Americans actually care that American soldiers are committing war crimes? Because, yes, the Winter Soldier hearings were powerful. You know, we, we had the Iraq War hearings. Uh, we had the Winter Soldier hearings for Iraq more recently, 2008, 2009. And arguably, the Iraq War is still going on. And you know, there's just very little justice for, for any of this stuff. And it was certainly not at the highest levels. So uh, thank you for writing about the veteran activism, though, because it is incredibly powerful. And, you know, again, in the Vietnam War, this seems like a trend. We're seeing this trend of racism that's on display in the United States coming into full force in Vietnam. So what instances do we see within the war itself, right? So not the veterans, I'm talking about the active duty at this point. There's an extreme degree of racism you talk about in the book, both, I think most people can identify it toward the Vietnamese. I don't think this war could function without the, the racism toward the Vietnamese, but also toward African-Americans who are serving in this war for the United States. So can you speak to that element of racism and also, of, of course, how did African-American soldiers voice their dissent? How did they speak out? How did they act in response to this level of racism that they were seeing on and off the battlefield? I mean, I think of the, because it's so it's so messing messed in anger at the war the same itself. Most of the most of the stuff that I under, that I know about is is fighting the wars. But I think the long been long been prison the prison stockade rebellions or rebellions like that, and organizing among African American soldiers who are who are not going to, but just white guys and the ones. Then that's it. I don't have a lot of documentation this second about organizing about racism in the military, but I'm sure it was, I know what's going on. It was certainly, and we have, you know, we have instances of racist officers getting killed or, you know, over disputes over race. And, you know, and you have to, we all have to remember this is happening the same time, the Vietnam War, as the civil rights movement yeah. is happening at home. And yeah. there are tensions that are brewing and officers got killed, and, you know, mm -hmm. you know, and, and we have cases of soldiers refusing to go out on patrol and all these things. And, and I think it's encapsulated by someone, ironically, who didn't fight in the war, which is Muhammad Ali famously said, you know, no Vietnamese person ever called me an N-word. And it encapsulates yeah. the tension that we mm -hmm. see going all the way back to the Filipino-American War, which I, I think is very mm -hmm. much a, a precursor to, to Vietnam in, in many ways. Mm -hmm. So moving us along here, and I'll, I'll get off Vietnam in a second, so it's not just Vietnam veterans displaying their dissent during the Vietnam War, which was valuable, as, as you articulated, but it's also in other wars afterward. And you talk about this case of, I think his name is pronounced Ray Bourgeois. <laughs> Ray uh, Bourgeois, yeah. Yeah, very, very I think that, that's, that's, uh, I've never talked about Father Roy. I don't know how he pronounces his last name. But. Yeah, so we'll, we'll go with your pronunciation, but yeah. can uh, yeah. can you speak for a minute about his development? Because he becomes this great anti-war activist, but not during the Vietnam War, ironically. He becomes an anti-war activist during the Reagan years. And if, yeah. for those who might not be as familiar, Ronald Reagan, for all intents and purposes, was waging a genocidal war in Central America, mm -hmm. in El Salvador, Guatemala, and mm -hmm. of course, and in Nicaragua, where hundreds of thousands of people were killed with U.S. Mm -hmm. weapons by U.S. trained soldiers with direct coordination with the United States. Mm -hmm. And 
he Roy is one of the dissenters to this particular set of U.S. actions. So can you talk about his development? Well, he was trying to figure out what to do about this. He went to El Salvador and Nicaragua, and just, he was trying to figure out how, how to fight this. And he realized that there's a school at Fort Benning. Now it's called the Hemisphere or something, a conflict operation, but it used to be called the School of the Americas. And decided yeah. to plant himself at Fort Benning. He did a famous action that I described in the book where he just, he had a boombox that had Father Romero, who was killed, who then is saying, telling all, to all the soldiers, this is, what you, this is what you're doing now. What you're doing against the people of our country. And he gets, they, they, they're, they're arrested for that. He showed up in his into military uniform and I said, oh, nice white guy in military uniform. He belongs here. And then just the boombox thing. And he, the School of the Americas is still going on. I believe they still have people who, in, who are fighting that school at the, at the moment. Yeah, I think it's called WinSec or something like that. I, I don't want to. Yeah. That's an abbreviation because it's, it's some ridiculously long name. But yeah, they, you know, they were. You know, we found a very clever way. And I say we, and I shouldn't say we. The United States mm-hmm. has found a very yeah. clever way of engaging in warfare without having to send American troops and thus sanitizing it from the public. United States troops weren't dying in Central America. Mm-hmm. Reagan was at least smart enough to know not to send American troops to die because he was living with the memory of Vietnam where people turned against yeah. the war. So you could kill literally hundreds of thousands of people through proxies trained by the United States at the School of the Americas and coordinated with the United States. And, you know, not many Americans will really bat an eye except brave people like Ray Bourgeois. And, but, and I, I believe in the book you mentioned, he even got a shout out from the president of Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega at the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Funny. So you got this, you got what, there's someone that you got in prison there, yeah. Yeah, that's re- that's really funny. So again, we're we're progressing forward in time, and you know, I, I encourage people to read the book again because there's, I'm listing a few examples. There are probably hundreds of examples in the books, in the book of these kinds of people who have been brave enough, either while in duty or afterward, to speak out against American militarism. And as you just mentioned, often with serious consequences, uh, prison time, and and often uh, reputational damage and. Uh, serious effects on abilities to get jobs in the future, and you know. Brian Wilson. Yeah, can you? Do you want to talk about him? Brian Wilson, who uh, was he was actually um, he was a Vietnam veteran who was working in the local VA in Massachusetts. He actually volunteered for John Kerry's Senate campaign. He was one of the what the, the dog eaters. You know, he was one of the people that helped helped John Kerry become a senator, and uh, he was organizing against the war in Central America. Um, there was veterans peace action teams. A bunch of young, young veterans organized these, these veterans peace action teams who would go, who would go to, South America, to Central America. And he also, he went to the former Fort Chicago, which is now called Concord Weapons Station. And he decided to sit in front of it. And there were trains that were headed to, with, with uh, weapons. And they did not, the train did not stop. And he and was run over. He lost his legs. He, he walked for seasons to this day. That's incredible. And, you know, and, and again, I'll bring it back to, I'll keep hammering this home there. We need to break that stereotype, that dissent or disapproval of the U.S. military actions is cowardly. It's exactly the opposite. People taking tremendous risk. And, you know, that... 
Nonviolent resistance is not passive. That's something that we need to understand. Yeah, and we're going to get into some examples of other people who have paid tremendous price as well as we move on to kind of the, our closing section of our chronology here, which is basically the Gulf War up until the war on terror to the present day. And I want to talk about someone else you mentioned in the book, a woman named Ellen Barfield, and she's also a veteran, and other veterans as well, uh, the people who end up forming the plowshares. They were not veterans at the time of the Gulf War, but they are some of the leading, sorry, they're not veterans of the Gulf War. They are veterans yeah. at the time of the Gulf yeah. War. I should correct myself there. Yeah. They voiced their dissent during a war that I think many Americans believed to be some kind of clean, low-cost war. You know, only a couple of hundred Americans were killed, never mind the hundreds of thousands of Iraqis that were killed, especially with the subsequent sanctions. Can you talk about Ellen Barfield specifically and people like her that documented some of the horrors of that war that most Americans watched on television and kind of felt really good about? I think George... H.W. Bush even said afterward, by yeah, God, we... The anniversary happening this second, last month, was the anniversary of the entire thing. January, January 14th was when the bomb started dropping, and February was in the ground war. And then we never heard about it. The, the media never said, said anything about it, because it was, as you say, it was so quick. It, was, it must be clean. Right, and, it was so quick on our side, but devastating for Iraqis. So no, can you, yeah. Can you uh, talk about the work of Ellen Barfield and, and people like her in documenting uh, again, what seems like a, from our side, our side, the U.S. side, a clean war. Veterans of Peace got involved in this really quickly. Great. All these veterans we talked about, they were now, and in 1985, they formed an organization called Veterans for Peace. We signed the follow-up from UW, which fall, fall apart. And it's the ones who do all of the Agent Orange work. And they, when 91 was, when Operation Desert Storm Shield was happening, they were busy trying to tell people not to go. The organization I ended up working for, and wasn't working there yet, was getting all these calls from saying, people saying, wait a minute, do I have, should I go? And it was the second, the second, then this trying to understand that these were young people not realizing that I joined the reserves and now I'm going to go to Iraq. But uh, Veterans for Peace was involved in trying to stop that. And they, Ellen did, and, and Brian Wilson, in fact, also went over there and looked, evaluated what was happening and saw the dam damage that had been done and the what was happening in the hospitals, and they tried to keep, make awareness of that the consequences of sanctions were very, very intense. It was something that we need to take some responsibility for. Yeah, and they even covered the Amaria shelter bombing, which killed something like 400 civilians, and, you know, it's a horrible incident where people's bodies were so disfigured they could only be identified by a piece of clothing or and there was it was it was so hot that body fat melted into the ground it was just a horrible incident and again these wars that we consider to be kind of sanitized and low cost are just the if, things that if they happened in the united states would be national holidays of, of remembrance yeah you know, and we, we have varying statistics, but we know that the sanctions killed at least a few hundred thousand people. Some people say up to a million uh, civilians were killed from sanctions. And we bombed rock every day. Between that and between that and 9-11, we bombed rock every day. Yeah, uh, and uh, Jeremy Scahill, the journalist, talks about this. People think that the 90s was a period of peace, but Bill Clinton was bombing Iraq constantly, uh, you know, with the no-fly zone. 
And, you know, again, we have this view that America is not at war because American troops aren't dying, but it's very much a war to the people on the ground. And this is before the invasion of 2003, which is crazy to think about. So thank you for pointing out that it wasn't everybody that was just asleep at the wheel during the 1990s. It was there was a dedicated group of soldiers and ex-soldiers that were dissenting at the time. So now as we move into the, the current age, there's some people that are well known, at least probably that people who listen to this podcast will be familiar with. And I mean people like Chelsea Manning, people that in my view are, are heroes. But also there's some lesser known figures, or at least I shouldn't say that, people that I didn't know about. And I wanna know about in our current age, the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and more broadly this war on terror that is at this point in God knows how many countries, but there are dissenters. There's a significant amount of them actually. What are some examples of some active duty soldiers resisting mm-hmm. U.S. efforts to invade Iraq in 2003, you know, and how were they received by the public? And I mean, specifically people like Stephen Funk, you mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. he is, uh, I believe you mentioned he is one of the first conscientious objectors to the, mm-hmm. this new war in Iraq of 2003. He was a, he was a young Marine who he uh, realized what, 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 it was basic training and said, said to himself, wait a minute, I think I'm, I think I should be here. And goes 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 to the to the ruler where it was in the nineties and says, I think I'm a conscious objector. And he actually counseled with one of the Gulf War conscious objectors, Amy Allison, was the person who counseled him and figured it out. But he he did not get declared a conscious objector by the military. He just he said, Okay, I'm just not gonna go and he, he decided to be public about it and called a press conference saying, you know, this, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to, to deploy to Iraq. Or actually the unit was actually supposed to replace a unit that was going to Iraq. So it wasn't, he was gonna go to Iraq, but still it was his fighting against the Iraq war. And he ends up in Camp Lejeune for a while. You know, he was in, he was in prison for a while. And he, uh, but he was the Amnesty International prison of conscience and the movement grew up around him. Yeah, his story is very inspiring. And, and, you know, I was in high school the year that the war in Iraq, the second war in Iraq took place. March of 2003, I was a senior in high school. And there was a fever pitch of war support and bloodlust. And you remember it as well, especially being a year and a half after 9-11, people still had this crazy idea that Iraq had something to do with 9-11, as if if it would be justified to destroy their country, even if that was true. So it took a lot of bravery to stand up against that public just onslaught of support for this war. And this is the uh, conservative radio and media is at its height, right? And anti-war people are being slandered. I still remember the Dixie Chicks like getting it really hard because they resisted. I can't imagine what he went through for resisting his service. You know, I can't imagine the names he was called or or the reputational damage that was done. But there are other people, uh, and I I do want to get to Chelsea Manning because she's something that people on the show probably want to hear more about. Uh, But I also, you have these other aspects of the war on terror that maybe go a little less mentioned than the actual conduct of the war itself. And that's the aspects of the war such as torture and imprisonment and things that have changed our society possibly irreparably. And I'm talking about the prison at Guantanamo Bay, some of which we only know about from people like someone you talk about in the book, and that's Brendan Neely. So who is Brendan Neely and what did he do 
and why did he resist these, mm-hmm. the, what he found to be occurring at Guantanamo Bay prison in Cuba? I don't know that he resisted in terms of he, he exposed what was going on, but he was he was one of the people that certainly responded when he when he got out, and he told everyone what he had, what he had, what he had found, and he went over there and realized that these people were not being treated by human beings. It was not right, and there was a whole system. There still is a whole system of Guantanamo, and it needs a lot of people to participate in making sure that it runs runs smoothly and he he was he did not help that happen but he 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 was honorably discharged he got through the entire time he was a big spokesperson for it afterward people were just beginning to understand what we had done around the time that that Seymour Hirsch is finally getting the news about um, Abu and all that all this is getting finally coming out yeah and Abu Ghraib gets a lot of attention, as it should, because it's this huge scandal where we find out Americans have been torturing Iraqis. But as you mentioned, it's kind of scratching the surface. This is going on all around the world in CIA black sites, at Guantanamo Bay. Guantanamo Bay is one of the better known ones as well. There's all these mm-hmm. secret sites where we have no idea what happens. And you know, we're calling, calling attention to the fact that the United States is in violation of the Geneva Convention. And people often say, well, they're terrorists. Well, first of all, no, very few people have been charged at Guantanamo mm-hmm. Bay. And I think people are unaware that a lot of the people who end up in Guantanamo Bay are simply people who were at the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, when the United States started the war. It's a little off, you know. Yeah, they would, they, you know, there's this demand for this mandate to make someone pay after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the CIA just poured money into these Afghan warlords who basically use the money to settle scores you know that guy's a taliban that guy's al-qaeda and often it was like business competitors or someone Mm -hmm. they had a a beef with or maybe just they just wanted the money they didn't care who gets sent to guantanamo bay but these are horrible stories and you know i would always case that in sorry couch that in the fact that even if they were terrorists we don't have a right to torture people and and violate Mm -hmm. the geneva convention and thanks to people uh, like Neely, we have a, an idea of what went on there. And, but speaking of having an idea of what was going on in the world war on terror, I would argue there are very few people on the planet who have told us more about the realities of the U.S. conduct of war than Chelsea Manning. And I, I really like that you started the chapter in the war on terror by talking about how Chelsea Manning, like myself, was pretty young when the war on terror started. She's younger than me. Uh, and, you know, she ends up playing this like huge role in history that I think we're, we're only going to find out is more important as time goes on, as people read the history of, you know, if they're going to be honest about what the war on terror was, we're going to be crediting Chelsea Manning and, and Julian Assange, of course, for publishing what Chelsea Manning revealed. So can you talk a little bit about who is Chelsea Manning? And what did she reveal? And in what reality did she reveal about the war on terror? And you know, of course, what penalty did she face? Because she did take tremendous risk. Chelsea mm-hmm. Manning was um, one of these young geniuses. She was she was an information intelligence analyst, and that's what she was doing in Iraq. And she was doing what they call creating intelligence products, looking at stuff was happening and turning it into something that that units could use. And that included finding out what was going on on the ground. And she found stuff that, was, that didn't make any sense to her. Like, you know, finds out about this one group of young Iraqis 
and finds out that they, they've been targeted to be tortured or killed because they need to have a body count. They need to have, you know, have something there. And she eventually decides that she's going to do a little more of her intelligence and find out what's, what is going on. She sort of figured out how to get, look, go, get into intelligence systems that she'd have before. And she ended up revealing some diplomatic evils that, that that stuff was never, but she decided to work with WikiLeaks because she was kind of impatient. And she called the New York Times and Washington Post and said, I have some information, uh, some stuff that you should know about. And I don't know if a 21-year-old guy who says, this is, this is relevant, and then hangs up. The editor just didn't take this seriously. And she didn't pursue that, so she said, those WikiLeaks, I can just give them the information. And so she did that. And she was having a conversation online with someone that she trusted, who turned out to be someone who decided to inform the FBI. And they go find her. They take her to Guantanamo, not Guantanamo, to a, what is it? What's that that place in North Carolina um, where the FBI trains? It's, um, not, it's not Fort Benning, is it? No, no, Leavenworth? no. It's Leavenworth. Not Leavenworth. Leavenworth is Kansas. Um, there's there's a TV series about it. Anyway, right. she was taken in, internally in the United States. Yeah. Is what you're saying? Yeah. And so she's she's they 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 are tormenting her. They're having her hang out naked. Because they, they think she'll strangle herself and hurt with her underwear. Um, and she's also transgender. She's figuring out she's transgender. So this is all very, very upsetting to her. She, I was at her court martial where she explained what, what she did. And she said she knew it was wrong, but she felt that information needed to be out. And she was sentenced to something like 35 years. And she went to Loveworth. And if it for President Obama hadn't commuted her sentence, she would still be there. And she did time but, in solitary confinement too, right? Yeah, she's all control confinement. For, yeah, and, and it was really hard. And and people need to read what she actually revealed because if you think that, not that anyone who listens to this podcast thinks this, but yeah, yeah. Uh, if you, people who think that Chelsea Manning is a criminal, look at what she revealed. I mean, it's, it's horrible thing. Like, the most famous is the collateral murder video, which is yeah. U.S. troops just gunning down civilians. Two, I believe, two of which were journalists. But it's 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 a treasure trove of just how illegal this war was, you know, documented torture, uh, the, the diplomatic cables, uh, you know, huge corruption amongst U.S. officials and their allies. There's even something in there uh, with the with the president of former dictator of Yemen, uh, Abdullah Saleh, where he's saying to the United States, David Petraeus, yeah, you can bomb whoever you want here. I'm paraphrasing, but and Ye- Yemen will take the credit until it got revealed later on that it was the U.S. conducting drone strikes and bombings, killing civilians all the time. You know, you mentioned the New York Times and Washington Post. Yeah, I, I don't know the story. I know that I've, I've heard that Chelsea Manning had reached out to them first, but I don't know how much time had passed and, you know, if the NYT and, and Washington Post deserve to be condemned for not listening to her. But at the same time, it does kill that assumption people have that she's, you know, she didn't go through legitimate channels because people don't consider mm-hmm. WikiLeaks legitimate. I, I would argue against that. But she did try to reach out to these legitimate mm-hmm. channels. She genuinely believed in what she was doing was the right thing. And, you know, I, th- I think I think we need to look at her as someone who did something incredibly mm-hmm. heroic. 
a lot a lot of that stuff has gotten reclassified now and i saw her i saw her speak at the university of pennsylvania and it was stuff that she wouldn't talk about that she talked about her at her court martial like she should have been warned so it's it's a very unhappy situation for her she's invested hanging out doing video games all well, and, and the another criticism of her was that she was going to get U.S. soldiers killed. Now, there's a couple things with that, that or U.S. personnel or U.S. Uh, proxies killed. There's a couple things with that I would say, like the ultimate responsibility of getting U.S. soldiers killed or, and personnel are those people that sent them into unnecessary wars. So the burden is on powerful people like George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. But the other thing was that Robert Gates, I believe, the former Secretary of Defense, testified at her trial that said they couldn't prove that anything that she revealed got any U.S. personnel or or U.S. proxies in put in any danger. She said she was careful about that. She said she was careful about that. She did not do that. Yeah, and I, I, I believe she was. She, she is obviously much more of a conscience than the people who are powerful in this situation. But uh, moving us forward and kind of toward our end here. Now yeah. – so we talk about language a lot on our show, probably too much because we dwell on it a lot. And we talked about this word. We wrote about it on our website, this word treason and traitor and how we think that it needs to be reevaluated and redefined. Because as you pointed out in your book, many of the people who in their time have been labeled traitors, but either colloquially or actually charged with treason – are often acting in incredibly heroic ways. Uh, and often those who were labeled patriotic at the time were behaving in ways that were incredibly imperialistic or immoral. So I want to know, like, writing this book, and obviously you mentioned it took you years of research, has it tra- changed your mind or co- complicated your view of that word treason and that other word patriotism? Patriotism, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of in the same camp as Danny Sergeant. There's, there's nothing more patriotic than dissent. There's nothing more patriotic than telling the truth. And there are a lot of quotes from people over the years who say the same, the same thing. Treason, I've thought a lot about because recently with what happened in, in D.C. And I want to mention quickly that I made a choice not to include that sort of dissent in my book. Timothy Vey is mentioned once as the as the as the, the veteran that broke the decade apart, but I don't want to give a lot of sunshine to people who think of themselves as as patriots, but they're they're the, they're the opposite, and that those guys are traitors right now, the veterans who were at the Capitol. So I think it's useful to think that their treason exists. Just decide who you, where you're going to use the word. Yeah, I, I like that you mentioned Danny Scherzen's book, and he has a great book that we talked about them called Patriotic Descent. And, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioning all these veterans that have reevaluated what it means to be patriotic. And for them, people like Danny Scherzen, uh, another someone else we had on the show was Christian Sorensen. He's great. He talks about his own descent. Uh, he was a former Air Force veteran. And all the people you mentioned in the book, I would also characterize these people as patriots in the fact that they were working to improve what the United States is, uh, not just going along, not criticizing uh, no, no any action of the United States. You know, I, there's a phrase. It's like being a patriot means being able to criticize your country when it's when it does wrong and praising it when it does something right. Being a nationalist implies loving your country no matter what it does, <laughs> whether it's yeah. right or wrong. And you know, and I would argue further if we're gonna that word treason. You know, why aren't we using that 
in a way that vilifies people who really have betrayed our soldiers, really have betrayed the people. Like, why isn't George Bush considered a, a traitor, right? Sending people into war to be killed uh, for reasons that are still unbeknownst to, to anybody. Uh, mm-hmm. Why are we not considering people like Ronald Reagan a traitor for you know betraying alleged American values by crushing independence movements in Nicaragua and you know we could take it all the way back to William McKinley how is William McKinley not a traitor for suppressing independence movements in the Philippines a betrayal of American values alleged American values so I like that you you really made me think with this book about those terms when you talk when you talk when I talk to soldiers on the hotline they often talk about every service has its values. You got, you know, now I'm going to, I'm going to suddenly like on what they are, you know, that, that it's, it's integrity, selfless service for the army. And they take them seriously. They're, they're drilled in, in, when they show up in service, they're drilled. They've got these values. They have to be, they have to be faithful to. And then they discover the government's not, not taking that seriously. They they decide to hold, to hold the country to that same to a standard that they're, that they're being held to. Right, hold the United States to the ideals that it espouses. I, I like the way that would work, and you know I, that's I think a good place to define patriotism. And you know I'll close out here. Uh, so the fact that so many of the most marginalized groups have turned on the U.S. military, dissented against the U.S. military in times of war. What I took out of your book is that we should really be calling into question the very notion that U.S. wars are somehow meant to promote liberty or democracy or whatever allegedly noble purpose. And so we need people like those that you describe in the in the book, because no one is more familiar with the darker tendencies of American society than many of the dissenters from the groups that you mentioned in the book, such as, you know, African-Americans, women of course, people who are from political affiliations that have been marginalized from from the left. And of course, I think that people need to read your book because it'll give you a clearer picture on what American wars have really been like from people who have the on-ground experience. But, you know, that's my take out of your book. What do you hope that people take out of your book and your work more broadly? And Anything else that you would like to promote that you're working on that you recommend that people check out? I'm I'm still in the afterlife of the book, so I don't have anything huge to. I mean, if, actually, I have some stuff I've written for waging waging nonviolence dot org. I wrote a piece about this Winter Soldier thing and about um John Lewis, the conscientious objector. You know that? Did you know that? I had no idea. No, see that that no one does. His funeral, nobody mentioned it. I couldn't believe this. He he was a conscious objector, no, a civilian one. And when he, he uh, originally he got the actual conscious objection thing, and then when uh, SNCC, who was, who was chair of it, of, came out against the Vietnam War, suddenly they said, no, no, you're 4F. And in those days, 4F was almost as good. People were like, okay, that's fine, 4F. But he didn't, therefore, but he was, he actually was a conscious objector to the war, and he supported people who doing that for, he, he supported the, uh, the guys who did the appeal for redress during Iraq. He opposed the Iraq war. He was, he was, so I wrote a piece about that, waging on violence, and also I wrote a piece about this winter soldier thing, and I'll probably write about it. So you can fi- check out my work there, waging on, on violence.org. 
Yeah, we, we definitely will, and we'll promote that. And and again, so of all, you, it sounds like you're doing some amazing work. What are you hoping that people take out of it? Like, what's the lesson or what's the big picture uh, theme that you're trying to get across? Because I mean, obviously it affected me quite a bit, and I, I do encourage people to read the book as well. But what, what do you want people to get out of it? Dissent is an important American value. And the need to question the decisions that your government made is part of everybody's birthright. And to support people, if, if people are involved in the in military system at all, you support them what they, what, they need to, what they need to do, the questions that they're asking. Well said, and we have a society that is so steeped in militarism. We have this adulation of all things military. I would encourage people to be less worshipping of the violent aspects of the U.S. military and the harm it does around the world and start listening to the dissenting aspects as you've displayed in your book because many of the dissenting veterans can teach us a lot about the nature of U.S. history. And last question I have for you, you are on the board of Center on Conscience and War. Can you just maybe fill us in a little bit about that organization? It was founded when World War II was about to start. In 1935, all these churches, priest churches came together and said, oh my goodness, what's going to happen to our people? And they formed something called the National Service, National Interreligious Service Bureau for Subconscious Objectors. And they they do, they're the person that, the organization that people can appeal to for if they want support. Either somebody, young person who wants to declare themselves conscious objector and never have to go to war, or in the military. People don't understand, most people don't know that you can declare yourself a conscious objector when you're, act, when you're active duty. That's a system that has been set up for a very long time. And so it's a very difficult thing to do. And that was when I got started doing this this work. So they, the, the people, most recently during the George Floyd, George Floyd thing, there were all people calling saying, I don't want it to be deployed against my own, against a protest. So you get a lot, a lot of, they, they've had a lot of work lately very the various things that have happened and it's actually their support has gotten their funding base has decreased simply because people remember them from vietnam and world war ii so people should go and learn about what they do well we'll definitely encourage people to do that that's the center on conscience and war and i want to thank my guest today so much that was chris lombardi she's the author of i ain't marching anymore dissenters deserters and objectors and Chris, I really thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much. Take care.